Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm your host, Laura Belmain, and in today's episode, I am really excited to be joined by our guest, Ben Sharkrand. Now, Ben joins us from a company called Spotlight Reporting, but he's much more than that. In fact, Ben, I'm going to do as I always do with a guest and hand over for you to introduce yourself. So firstly, hello, Ben, and welcome, and thank you for being here. Cool. Well, thank you for having me. So, um, who am I? My goodness. Yeah, who are you, um, the human, Ben? <laughs> well, I guess the boring LinkedIn profile will say that um, you know I'm, a, I'm the CTO here at Spotlight Reporting. Um, I've been in tech for over 25 years in a few countries, but um, yeah, been software engineer m most of my career. Um, I guess one of my passions for quite a long time has actually been doing uh, running code clubs for kids. I've been doing that for um, I don't know around seven, eight years now. So. Um, COVID really put a spanner in my works. <laughs> that a lot of my co-clubs ran at noon at school, so I've been having a hard time running them since then. But um, yeah, so from that, I, I really enjoy trying to get out into the community and just share what I know. That's awesome. Uh, and what I love about all the guests that we get on this podcast is um, it's not about what's on your LinkedIn, right? It's the crazy mess of other things that we are that makes us who we are in our tech roles. Um, so firstly, lucky kids um, having these co-clubs running. Um, I wish they'd had those when I was younger. Um, and I do hope you get your rhythm back now that we're at least adapting after the early stages of COVID, I think is probably the most diplomatic way to put that. Who knows? Does anyone have the right phrasing these days? Okay. So, Ben, we are the CTO at Spotlight Reporting. And now what I love about this, and I'll share for our, our guests listening in, is I have a note on my interview for this one with the most bizarre kind of phrase in it that I've ever read. And I'm a security person. We read bizarre things all the time. And that phrase was, talk about SMS pumping fraud. And I will admit, as a security person, I took a double take at that and went, you what now? So, Ben, I'm assured you have a story to tell us. And I think today we're going to talk about when things go wrong and something called SMS pumping fraud. <laughs> Yes. So I guess in the security, uh, uh, sorry, in the tech world, we seem to be reluctant to talk about incidents. And this one, I'm happy to talk all about it. In this case, um, SMS, we use SMS here at Spotlight Reporting as part of our multi-factor authentication. So just sending, you know, codes to users. SMS pumping fraud is where people will intentionally direct large volumes of traffic to certain phone numbers to certain countries because they somehow get a cut of the transaction fees as the SMS go by. So what happened the other day for us is that we've been noticing, hey, I, I remember very clearly, I get an email from Twilio because Twilio, it works on a recharge basis. Every once in a while I get an email saying, we just put another you know, $100 in. And I saw the email and I archived it. Then I was like, why is, what's up with Google today? You know, the email is still in front of me. Archive it, archive it, archive it. The fourth time I said, wait a second, this isn't an issue with my web client. This is, you know, we're getting a lot of traffic. So I looked at Twilio and there was a very market stepped increase to phone numbers to Indonesia. And for context, we don't have customers in Indonesia. Mm, it's so, a mystery. Yes. So we dug into it and then I realized, oh my goodness, We've just spent several hundred US dollars on this. Um, we have no customers. I've confirmed it. Can I block the entire country? It's the fastest, safest thing for me to do. Got the approval, yes. And shortly after I blocked it, if now that I look at the chart, there was a little step upwards, but then it skyrocketed upwards in terms of traffic. So what 
cost us several hundred dollars, could have cost us, you know, many thousands of dollars because these, you know, we just got absolutely inundated. And at the same time, and early in the morning, some of our um, customer success team were saying, hey, we're getting a lot of these fraudulent trial accounts. It appears it's an IP address somewhere in Gaza that seems to be creating it. So the impression I get is that, you know, someone realized, hey, these guys seem to be a target and we can, you know, probably set up a bot to just send vast numbers of SMS always to the same numbers. And yeah, the, the, the solution was as simple as blocking it. But at the same time, it does really highlight a lot of the problems that we've had with SMS. It's everything from the cost to every single country nowadays is starting to roll out legislation around if you send SMS, you have to register or stuff like this. It just makes it really, really hard. And on top of that, we also get just users saying, hey, I didn't get your SMS for some crazy reason. Yeah, yeah. So all those things combined, we're like, that's it, enough. We're not supporting SMS anymore. We're gonna roll out you know, a QR code, uh, you know, TOTP style yeah. authentication. We'll also provide email authentication. So that's gonna happen soon, but yes. Wow, uh, okay. Just to block. Indonesia before we got a huge bill. Yeah, Ben, I'm going to get us to take a little bit of a breath. With this, so much to unpack here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to dig into some bits of this. So many of our audience will never been involved with an incident like this before. And it's really amazing to have somebody who's willing to share one that happened to them. So kind of let, let's dig into some bits and pieces. So um, you said at the very start that somebody was able to monetize this SMS sequence. So what, what can we dig into that a bit more? What did you know about that? What do you know now about the outcome for the attacker? What were they trying to achieve? The interesting thing is I learned about this because um, Twilio is selling um, SMS traffic pumping protection. Uh, it's sort of like an insurance, but it means that you have to pay something like uh, three and a half cents per SMS. And at the time I was like, yikes, that in some cases could double or more the cost of our SMS per user. I wasn't really interested in that, but I read all about it and I said, like, yeah, cool. That makes sense. And I guess I was, was always conscious of that, but at the same time I was thinking, oh, all right, well, maybe we need to eventually start getting ready. Um, but it was only on the day that I started getting these emails that you know, we had to kick off our incident management mm -hmm. processes. So every company, you know, we all t have our incident management processes. The difference really is, you know, is this practice, is it understood? Mm -hmm. You know, do we have experience with this? Um, I guess since I've been here, that's something that we've been really focusing on, just making sure that the team are well-versed in this. And it's not just the technical response. We have to communicate, whether internally or sometimes even externally. We need to be prepared. Now, in this case, this was nice and small and the scope was limited. But what if it had been something more serious where, for example, we would have to, worst case, notify you know shareholders, et cetera, that, I don't know, something really serious happened. But yes, thankfully, we had a process and we were able to kick that off. And we were able to communicate pretty quickly and effectively within the team in order to come up with a plan of attack. But it just happened to be on the day that I had a lot of people who I think we were either sick or away. So I was leading the incident. But um, yes, thankfully, I was able to log in and action all that pretty quickly. That, that's really good. So our attacker really wasn't. So it's one of those attacks, if you say, that it wasn't about spotlight. Like they weren't attacking you because you were you. They were attacking you because of technology you were using and they were able to benefit from it. Now, that's right. That's interesting, right? How many of us, you know, when we're doing our threat modeling, really sit down and think about the attacks that aren't about who we are, but they're about what our technology could be used for for somebody else's gain in that kind of way. Um, 
How has that made you think about kind of risks and threats against, you know, your organization now, Ben? It makes you want to reevaluate assumptions over time. Um, and I guess that's been the, the journey, like in Spotlight's you know, been around for over 10 years and the assumptions that we made at various points in time sometimes aren't necessarily valid and they need to be reevaluated. Like with SMS, everyone thought, oh, surely this is great. Everyone's doing this, it's easy. I just hook up Twilio and the API is right there. Look at that, look, it's so easy. And now that we've had this, something like this and we had the warning signs of this, you know, this is already starting to come up on our radar thinking, oh, should we do this? And the challenge at times can be that discussion of like, you know, wait a second, should we spend time addressing something like this when instead we could be developing something that our customers more interested in? It's That's always part of the hard internal debate. I mean, but thankfully in my case, I was able to <laughs> present a lot of technical information leading up to this thing. I think we should do this. And when this happened, it's like, all right, we are definitely doing this. You know, we just can't bear this risk anymore. Um, and not only that, when it when I could say, listen, I saved this something like over $10,000 by blocking that entire country. Well, Let's get know, rid of this all together like, to prevent this happening again. It sounds like you're going to do well in a performance review as a result. I, I, it's not very <laughs> often you get to say, I saved you $10,000 from security. Um, th this is really interesting to me. So, you know, it's lucky that you've been doing that pre-prep work. But I think there is a reality that in many of our software teams, it gets infinitely easier to get approval or support or resource or time to do a security thing once a bad thing has happened. Um, do you think that there are any other ways or a better way of us getting these security things along uh, across the line before a bad thing happens? For us at Spotlight, um, let's give a bit of context. Once again, we've been around for about 10 years, around um, just under 60 staff. One of the challenges we have is that once you get bigger and you start selling these large enterprise clients, security is absolutely top of mind for them. You can, you know, we all want to chase the big giant orgs out there because obviously they're going to pay a fair bit, but their security requirements are very, very high. And from that, things like ISO or SOC 2 is something that we have to implement. And part of that, it's ultimately all about security because if you're going to sign up a customer like that, they're going to ask you, you know, here's a 50 page questionnaire. Tell me, everything about your security essentially prove to me that you take all of this seriously, but mm -hmm. not just as a one-off thing. Show me proof that you're doing things on a regular basis, for example, doing a tabletop exercise periodically. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, so I guess for us, um, that's part of our, I guess our evolution is that, you know, like everyone that's a startup, you know, we started off really small and scrappy chasing the small outfits, but as we went after the bigger ones, things like ISO and SOC 2 were really important, but they really infor really required us to make sure that we had all this really well sorted, bedded mm -hmm. in. And once again, it's not just a one-off thing that you're doing. So that's the worst thing that can happen. It has to really be part of the culture. Um, everything from, you know, we, we think about security the minute we're, we're designing a story to, hey, do you really need access to this? Or <laughs> can I give you just read-only access? Or can I, can I not give you access to this at all in the first place? How have you found that transition, Ben? So I know, you know, we talk to folks at the at the, the high end. We've spoken to folks from Red Hat and, you know, Zero at the very, very big end of scale and Twilio themselves. Um, and then, you know, we've spoken to people in tiny, tiny scrappy startups. Um, but that transitional period is, is very interesting because you know, you're, you're changing a lot, not just as a business, but as a, a security approach and as a technologist. So how have you found that? What's your experience of it so far? Easy, hard, painful? Um, I guess you say challenging. I have 
I came here late in the uh, ISO process, but in my previous role, um, I implemented SOC 2. And in both cases, it's it, for, it requires a certain maturity from the organization, and that only usually comes when the organization sort of hits a certain point. So when you're really small and you're scrappy and you're just starting up your business with your friends, you can get by and you cut all these corners, and that's fine. You're just hustling to build that first thing. But eventually, you do hit that sort of inflection point where it's like, hold on, you know, we need to take this seriously. And by the way, we're not just four people or even 10 people. We're suddenly 50 people. And all these things like, hey, we really need to, like, you know, offboard these people because we don't want to still have access to our source code repo and stuff like this. So it's, um, it is a bit of a, a challenge. And especially because when you first talk to people, they go, oh, this is just bureaucracy. This is just more process. This is just more policy. This doesn't mean anything. But when you actually dive into it, it goes, yeah, this actually does make sense. And taking those first few steps and eventually moving down that path, it, it is a bit painful at first because sometimes it involves a little bit of cleanup, changing the culture, changing how you do things. But that, once again, is more of a reflection of the maturity of the organization once you hit that next step. These are things that you have to do because what you could do when you're 10, it's very different from when you're 50, different from when you're 200, from yeah. 5,000, et cetera. So, yeah, it's challenging but doable and ultimately quite rewarding because once you have this in place and if it's well done, it's just something that just takes over and it's just part of life and it shouldn't be this massive scary onerous thing it's just little things like hey when somebody leaves make sure you tell somebody so we offboard them as an example <laughs> yeah it's it's funny we all smile and laugh at those kind of situations but they happen so often right you know mm -hmm. especially you know the last few years where we've been some folks are working from home we've still got some people in offices and we don't have that visibility anymore you can't say hey you know Jamie didn't turn up today and hasn't turned up all week. What's going on? It's not that obvious anymore. Um, okay, so you're now, you know, you've, you've got your compliance, you've got these, these systems in place. How does that look for your world from a developer's view? So, you know, rather than the big processes around ISO, I know a lot of that gets owned by the, the wider organization, but what about inside the software team itself? What impact has that change had there? In theory, assuming that you're following modern best practice, it shouldn't have much impact because in theory, when we're writing that story, we're thinking about security implications. We're, we're you know, following that best practice from, say, AWS or from Microsoft. And I say this once again, in theory. And I know. <laughs> so, so I'm going to just explain for the audience at home. I can see Ben's lovely face and you cannot. Um, ben has that lovely, dreamy kind of like idealistic face on and he's kind of, you know, this is clearly the ideal in theory. Um, so what does what really happens then, Ben? What really happens is that you look at what we built over 10 years and you go, oh my goodness, what, what have you built? In some cases it goes, yeah, that's okay. In other cases, like, oh my goodness, no one's touched this for ages. No one knows anything about this. What does this mean? We need to revisit this. We need to review it. Um, the worst case is we build something and it's so significant that we have to go um, everything from we need a, maybe a security analyst up front or at a minimum, we need someone, a pen tester, to come in after the fact and say, hey, we've just, for example, I don't know, rebuilt our login mechanism for, you know, SSO. Mm -hmm. We need pen testers to come in and across it. And ideally, though, some of some of the what some of what has changed is really just our tools and our processes so it's it's an accumulation of little things and i like to think of it as lines of defense like a castle you know it's mm. not just to say we have a wall therefore we're secured it's like no 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 
we have a moat, we have a wall, we have the parapets, we have the, you know, the yeah. So with the development, it's, it's things like, um, you know, we have dependency scanning, we have static code analysis, we have, um, you know, with our stories, you know, this clear task, you know, for us to forcibly stop and think about security upfront, big and small. There's, um, we have other vendors that we can talk to to get their opinions and um, to sense on it. There's, especially with the cloud, which is constantly evolving, um, there's the good news is that there's a lot of security functionality built into there by default. So it's, in that case, it's really about how can we make use of it and how can we surface this? Because the last thing we want is for it to go to a CloudWatch log and no one to ever notice it, and, even though it's screaming at us and saying, alert, something major is happening. So it's all these all this accumulation of little tools to make sure that we're using it, but it's also those to practice and the, and the thinking. So don't just necessarily build at speed, but think about the quality, think about oh. security, think about privacy, think about all of these things are really ideally upfront and ongoingly. So as the development starts, then it goes, oh, cool. Uh, I know what I'm doing and I've already done all the basic groundwork and all these other tools are there to support me. So therefore I should be good. So how does this work? You've got tools and you've got processes you're describing and and this sounds really comprehensive, you know, it sounds really impressive to me. I'm, uh, I see teams at every scale from like just starting out to, you know, the cutting edge. And that sounds pretty comprehensive. So you've got 60 people ish in your whole org. Um, I assume a smaller amount of those are in engineering. Um, how, how do you split that load across your team when you're at that size? The, I guess the first problem with load is there's always the challenge of just trying to keep up with support. Um, and the support can be everything from, you know, genuine user error to, hey, this, we see something in logs and our tools that seems a bit fishy and we need to go off and investigate this because who knows, it could just be a sign of a bigger fault or it could be maybe of a sign of a little hack that's going on, but we need to stop and investigate. This, I guess what some orgs do is they, they just give rough budgets to say, for example, you know, 50% new stuff, 20% support, 30% just, you know, uh, code smells, tech debt and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's a nice, easy, simplistic rule of thumb. The reality is it's more nuanced and it depends on, you know, what's pressing at the moment. So if, for example, you, you know, we're in a period where we're getting a lot, we had a lot of incidents and their you know, performance was an issue, then it's like, yeah, you know, maybe the new stuff gets put on hold and maybe some other things were not as focused, but it's always like, it's a constant change and um, a slight change in focus, but it's never to say that we should, for example, say, ah, oh, I'm so worried about performance. I just, I'm just not even going to care about things like security anymore. It's like, no, 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 there's minimums, there's baselines. Yeah. That which we must always do. It's just, you know, it's all the other factors. What, you know, dials can we, what dials can we sort of adjust to still deliver and move forward and make sure the platform is running I love that idea of having a baseline, not just for security, but for performance and just for quality uh, overall. Um, is that something that's explicit that in your team? So if you were to get a new person in your team tomorrow, um, how do you communicate that expectation to them uh, when it includes so many things like performance and scaling and, and security in the mix? Ah, good question. The, um, I guess part of this goes back to um, how mature an organization is and how uh, far advanced they are. I mean, I've worked in places like um, the banks where their practices are extremely mature. We would go in on a Friday and there would be a what they call a performance pack waiting for us. And we would sit in front of the senior managers. And if there's if ever there's a little blip or there was a lot of 400s or anything that looked fishy, we'd have to be ready to explain everything. And not only to explain why is that there, 
well, what are you doing about it? Mm. So that culture is something I've taken and scaled down to here because once again, bank of 5,000 people, you know, 50 plus staff, it's a bit different. So I guess it's taking some of these ideas, but scaling it down. So I guess if, if you were to come and join me, Laura, I would be talking about, for example, you know, this is our process. This is how a piece of work begins from the idea phase. This is what it happens when it, it comes close to you. And this is what happened, what I expect from you. But also this is what I expect afterwards. We don't just ship code, hooray, move on to the next thing. It's like, no, 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 we worrying about our platform and I say this as, as I'm talking to you, I'm staring at a screen with all our stats, which I constantly look at to make sure that the platform is healthy. Um, you know, that's that stressful to me. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're constantly doing this. So once again, it's a constant juggle. We want to move forward. We want to deliver stuff. We want to delight our users. But at the same time, we need to keep up on that technical debt. We need to keep modernizing our platform. We need to still be constantly paranoid about security that even if things look good, it's like, no, the hackers are hacking all our logs. It doesn't matter. We need whatever it is. It's like also that feeling of continuous improvement. Like, how can we always get better? Mm. So uh, I really like this because so many of the stories are told from the perspective of a large organization, not from one at the scale you're at. And this this feels achievable, which, you know, everyone wants that, right? You don't want something as complex as security to also feel very overwhelming. Um, now, some organizations, when they do security things like running code scans, that kind of stuff, they, they might have security champions through their team, so individuals who take responsibility. It sounds to me, however, like you've kind of got a shared responsibility model. Is that kind of the case, or how does that's it work what, in, in a practical sense? That's what we're trying to do. The reality is that we do still have people with a stronger set of skills. The, For example, we have people who are stronger in front-end cloud um, security. We have intentionally outsource a certain degree of our, um, our, of our security and cloud work. But the idea behind that is, isn't to say that we wash our hands of it. It's more that we have access to a large amount of expertise and capability because we're only, you know, I have a 10 engineers excluding, you know, myself. So there's only so much, you know, knowledge and capability I have, but it's also the idea. It's like a serverless idea that if something was to happen, I want to be able to tap in to those resources. Mm -hmm. So not just to do the work, but to have access to expertise. So, yes, ideally, we are constantly trying to upskill and trying to make sure there's this baseline for people. And going back to the um, like incidents, we were running what I call fire drills. It'd be like a almost like a D&D session where someone would have fun saying, this scenario has happened. What would you do? I, I love it. I love it. Who gets to play the dungeon master? Is that you? Oh, oh it's, it's my colleague who uh, wrote the first draft of our incident process. So she has a lot of fun coming up with this. Um, <laughs> these interesting ones. And I, I tried to come up with some, like, for example, it's it's 4.45 on a Friday and your last one here and you suddenly get these alerts and they sound pretty darn serious. What would you do? And it's not clear if this is super serious, it's a false alarm, but you know, what do you do? You just go home, do you call Ben who you know he's on his way to his, you know, having fun on a mountain bike ride or, you know, what do you do? It's it's fascinating, right? I, you know, I used to be in D and D player. Um, I, I think I only really stopped because I had kids. And I I love the creative thinking that you have in those safe environments when you can pose a realistic challenge and really let people relax into solving it without the stress right. and the, the adrenaline and all of those things coursing through you. How frequently, as a team, do you do those? Um, and you know, are there any tips? If we, you know, we're going to use the last few minutes of our time together, what are the tips you would have if folks who are looking to get started in this incident response space make sure they're prepared? Uh, what tips would you give them? 
I guess the first is um, look for, there's lots of content out there, but some of the content tends to be geared for the very large organization. So the first thing is just keep in mind the scale of your organization. Once again, we're only 50 plus people. I, I looked at GitHub, for example, or sorry, GitLab, and they have amazing resources, but my goodness, they're just too much for, for us. Um, the next point is to really, I guess, bring everyone along for the journey. It, could, it shouldn't be something that's written just, for example, by the CTO and by, by themselves without everyone else. It, everyone else should be aware of, you know, why you're doing it and also, you know, contribute to it. And then when it comes to practicing, um, I guess that's where we, we need to state that even what we come up with initially, that's just a starting point. The idea is that we all want to work on this collaboratively so we not only feel better, but get feedback from everyone so that, you know, we feel confident and we know what we're doing. And those D&D uh, &D type scenarios where, you know, he, he, the dungeon master in this scenario gets to choose something else, that's where it's fun to tease out all these weird edge cases and especially these, uh, these are very, very stressful ones. And it's amazing because usually the problems we identify are not technical. They're process or just people issues. Like, for example, is someone afraid of calling the CEO <laughs> or the CTO, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As a CEO, I know this is a real thing. Um, and and giving people the psychological safety to, in the that's event right. of an emergency, know they can take that action is, that's really important and way harder than I thought it would be. Um, th this is really, really cool, Ben. And I think, you know, if we were going to sum up some actions for our, our audience to think about and take away after this, you know, the things that are sticking with me, firstly, that, you know, the incident that we shared at the start could be just about the technology you're using, not about you as an organization. Now, I'm thrilled you were able to just block an entire country as your solution. Um, but maybe, you know, I, I do ponder what would happen one day if you were, had customers in that region. And, you know, the, you know, the call was coming from inside the house kind of situation. Um, so, you know, lots to think about there. Is there anything in your technology audience that would be, could be attacked in that way? And what would you do? And could you use Ben's guidance today and his suggestions to think about incident response for your team and do it in a fun, safe way? Now, I also love that we shared that bit of journey of, you know, that transition from scrappy young company to, you know, embracing compliance and putting it through a dev team. So hopefully if you are listening to this and you're in that phase, there's something you can draw from that, even if it's the idea that nobody's perfect. And there's a lot of in theory and uh, it's OK. It's OK that we are where we are and we get a bit better each day. Thank you so much for your time today, Ben. Um, it's really really amazing for somebody to share an actual incident that has happened and also the background of how security has been maturing in your space. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Okay, team. Well, you know how this works. Remember to share and like and subscribe and all of those kind of things. Um, and leave a comment if you have any questions. We'd love to hear from you uh, and find out more about your world. If you'd like to suggest a guest, please don't be shy. We love talking to folks who are trying to secure some of the most amazing technologies the world has ever seen. And you might not think yours is, but I probably do. So reach out. Thank you so much. Bye.